Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. Well, we record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't a podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts well. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing, 
Every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Hey, Corey, how are you doing? I am doing really good. How are you? Oh, I'm probably not as good as you, but I'm trying, you know. Well, there were a few setbacks this morning. I woke up and it was below freezing and snow flurries again. So really? I'm, uh, wow. this is we're talking the end of May here and we're still getting February weather. I'm ready for 65 or 70 degrees at least. No, I, I'm there with you. I, last night we had a cross between a blizzard and a hurricane. I'm not sure which it was, but I woke up in the two dog kennels and I have a 20 by 25 dog kennel. Both dog houses were leaned up against the east side of the fence that is the dog kennel. <laughs> and I looked out last night at about 930, just at the twilight hour. And if I wanted to, I could have taken my snowblower out to blow the hail off my driveway. Wow. It's like... But here's the good news. You know, I'm one of those guys who doesn't wash his truck. That little pea, that little pea-sized hail will take all that, like, two years of dirt and stain and water stain off there. My truck looks oh, yeah. so clean this morning. But you can tell where it all runs off. I've got two big, long streaks along the edge <laughs> of my truck that have about two inches of dirt laying there. So uh, I'll, I'll shovel that off when it dries off. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the weather's just been crazy. We, uh, I've picked about seven or eight pounds of morels in the last three evenings, and mm. those things are growing in snow in some places, which yeah. is so weird. Like the ground temperature has to be a, a certain temperature for them to start popping up, and they're like, hey, the ground's good. Whether there's snow or not, we're coming up. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I uh, I was bear hunting for five days last week, and it snowed or rained every day. There was not a day that we didn't have precipitation, and the visibility was hmm, varied from 100 yards to 400 yards, which is kind of tough when you're glassing yeah. and doing spot and stock. <laughs> but you know what I did see, though? And I'd be curious in your thoughts on this. There's a lot of elk in this spot where I bear hunt. I Obviously, I bear hunt where I know the calving areas are. Because uh, black bears, they're, they're no dummies. They're like, well, come about the end of May, there's going to be a lot of groceries on the landscape here. <laughs> and so I, I, I bear hunt a lot in those areas. Well, there was a group of 11 bulls. And one of them already was so far developed with four points on the lower half. And his two fronts were already ridiculously long. I'm like, wait a second. He just didn't shed last year. And then when the visibility broke, I'm like, I've never seen an elk in this part of May that is that far along. I, is that like abnormal is that weird is it a function of when they drop their antlers or uh, yeah those, like, those bigger bulls typically drop earlier uh, okay. smaller bulls drop later so they do get a jump start on on growth uh same thing for us so we saw i think three or four bulls in nevada last week when we were down shed hunting that i saw them and thought we're still in may and those things are huge i'm talking full bean growth you know out at 
45 inches wide. Like you said, eye guards that were already curled up at nose length. And yeah, so yeah it was pretty exciting to see some of that. And if we continue with some of this moisture, you know, that's the thing that I've noticed a lot of the sheds that I found uh, in places like Nevada that might have a moist spring, but then it gets dry and hot through the summer and they lose all the, the nutrition in their feed. They'll have these giant fronts, huge bases and great big long eye guards and maybe even all the way up to the fourth. But then the end of their beam and their fifth point is just super, super weak. And really? hopefully, huh. hopefully this year they've got, I mean, there was a lot of the tanks were already dry down there, but at the same point, there was more green grass and it was, hmm. it was looking good. Well, t- tomorrow we find out if we draw Nevada. So maybe this is your year. Well, when you say we, you would be referring to those who applied for a tag in Nevada and didn't just buy oh. a bonus point. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's pretty hard yeah. to get a tag when you say, just give me a point. It, usually their computer systems don't mess that up and send you a tag. I now, in Montana, in Montana, if you mess up your application, they just do a second draw for everybody who can't read instructions. Well, that's, that's nice. What they, that's what they did this year. See, if you wouldn't have followed the instructions in Montana this year, you would have got put in a second draw. And your really? odds in that, yeah. No, oh, you didn't see that well, part. What were the instructions? No. What, the what instructions, well, there were a bunch of hunt codes that said first choice only. Well, it was supposed to say first and only choice. So the software booted anyone who put a second and third choice. Well, you would think a software company that's getting paid millions of dollars would say, oh, if this is first choice only, let's not even give them a second or third choice. Well, they let them put in second and third choices, and then it booted them and disqualified them from the draw. Well, after the draw, people are like, what, what, what happened here? I, it doesn't say if I drew it in draw, it just says disqualified. Well, they find out what the problem is, and they're like, all right, all you people who got booted, who can't read instruction, and it's really not their fault. I th- I'd say it's yeah. as much. The regulations didn't say first and only. It said first choice only. Well, that that doesn't mean you can't put a second or third choice. So yeah. I think I, I put more of it on the department. But rather than redo the draw or just say, hey, we made a mistake, they added 10% more tags. And these people <laughs> who got booted got in a draw for some very coveted tags where their draw odds were 40%. Man. It's like, well, next year I'm going to see if in Montana, if I can figure out how to check a box that messes up my application and maybe i'll be in a you know i'll i'll get a tag yeah so i don't count good good approach i like i like montana's approach there it's fair for everyone it's uh, more fair for those who might need a little bit of extra help yeah so maybe the nevada vendor We'll take some notes from the Montana Technology Group, and maybe you will get an elk tag for putting in for a point. I'll tell you, I I, I, uh, I think I found the unit that I want to apply for. Really? Just after okay. seeing some of those bulls, it, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm ready to start applying here soon. Really? Well, that's good to hear because uh, I did apply for that unit that you called me from. Yeah? Yeah. That's my good. odds are like I think I look on Go Hunt. My odds are point zero two percent or something. But yeah, yeah. Well, 
So you're saying so, there's a chance. <laughs> so I got to ask you this. We're in between the day that Wyoming drew results yesterday and uh, Nevada draws tomorrow. I didn't get a text message from you hooting and yelling and jumping up and down that you ended up with a, a Wyoming elk tag. Is that because yeah. it's, such, it's such a good unit you don't want to tell anybody? or Yeah, I just, you know, you want to keep things quiet and, uh, when you're successful. And when you're unsuccessful, you want to keep them even quieter sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, uh, yeah, very shocked. Donnie texted me a screenshot yesterday morning, and then it said unsuccessful. And I said, no, nah, that's... They just haven't loaded the results yet. You know, they've, they've opened up the portal, but they don't have the results in there. And, well, I checked my email, and they said, yeah, results are up. So I signed in, and mine said unsuccessful as well. And I I thought for sure we were a shoe-in. I, I mean, I just, based on the numbers from last year and how many points we had, and we, yeah. uh, we didn't draw. And we even put in for the special, you know, the – $30,000 tag or whatever it is that they charge you for <laughs> to have a better chance of drawing. And, uh, uh, I think huh. it's, what, $1,300 or something. I thought the extra yeah. the extra would get us in there, but it didn't. Huh. Well, that's a bummer. Yeah, I, so uh, now we're back to square one. I think we're going to go probably over the counter in Idaho, and which is great being a resident we've got that to fall back on so yeah you you guys have pretty darn good success there that's for sure but well i just i wonder you know having watched a lot of these systems mature i i'm comparing the the creep or if you want to call it that of the wyoming system to what it got like in Colorado after Colorado system has been, had been around 15, 16, 17 years. And it's like following the same exact path. Yep. You know, it, it maybe not quite as bad as Colorado's was just because Wyoming gives 20 per, 25% as random tags. So it does allow for a little bit more of a matriculation or whatever you want to call yeah. it through the, through the point piles. But, if anyone wants to see what's going to happen in Wyoming, just go look at what Colorado is. Colorado started their system 12 years before Wyoming or 14 years before Wyoming. You're, you're going to see the same exact thing. It's yeah, a function. Only it might get worse when they go to a 10% non-resident instead of the 20%. Right. Cut non-resident tags in half and you're going to see, it's not yeah. going to be point creep. It's going to be point explosion. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, but with I, that, I you, I'm I'm guessing you're gloating because you drew a Wyoming tag. I'm not gloating at all. No, but you did draw but a Wyoming tag. <laughs> I did lock out and draw a general tag. Nice. So, me and me and my buddy Bo Beatty. Or, Bo, I, I didn't. I thought they were drawing them today, and I woke up and I already have a text message from Bo at like four in the morning. <laughs> Hey, look. Uh, my buddy Mike Spitzer uh, is also going to join us. Uh, we've uh, Mike and Bo have both been on plenty of episodes of our content, longtime friends. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah. I, I'll be honest with you, I did not expect to draw. I I was surprised that we drew. Um, so, but uh, you know, just looking at that, 
I, the other part, if you look at the history and trends, and maybe this is the benefit of being gray like I am and being older than Methuselah's grandmother, is that... <laughs> I've also seen enough trends of what happens, and not that I am wishing for a repeat of 2008, 9, and 10 from the economy of the U.S., but there are tags I picked up in states as second choice back during those hard periods when everybody just had to make some difficult budget decisions. They had to say, I can't do this. This is not my budget right now. Uh, and I picked up tags that now are taking four or five, like I, I a couple times I picked up Wyoming pronghorn tags as second choice that now take four or five points. I could have wow. picked up the special elk tag, general elk tag as a second choice many, many times. Um, yeah. So I think if, if you see what's happening with inflation, with the stock market, yeah, well, just something. gas prices alone. Somebody texted me yeah. a picture the other day in California. It's over six dollars a gallon, and you think of somebody back east, even at you know four fifty a, a bargain at four fifty a gallon, driving yeah. a couple thousand miles out here and back. That's that yeah. adds a lot of expense. Yeah. So I think it'll be interesting to see if that is just a, a little bubble in our economy, or if it's a longer term trend. If it's a longer term trend. Every prior event like that, since I've been involved in these application games, has resulted in a bit of a relief to the number of applicants. But maybe it won't, right? because one of the things I do know that we are, this is just a demographic thing. You look at the age of the hunting population, and it's a much older population now than it was 15, 20 years ago. And as they got older, they got more time and they got more money. And they've been buying these points, waiting for the day. Yeah. Um, now they're they're jumping in. They have the time. They have the money. So I I could be wrong, but I think someday, twenty years from now, there's going to be like all the old farts like me are in their rocking chair drinking coffee, and the young energetic <laughs> hunters are going to be like, oh man, look at that! I drew a unit, whatever, with one point. <laughs> all these old farts are they cashed out. They, they, they're they're not doing this anymore maybe i'm wrong in that but uh just seeing some of this stuff for me as a student of history and kind of this little microcosm it's there's some interesting trends going there and some of them i think are pretty predictable you know like yeah. just anything any state that has a component of their draw that creates a quasi preference point system like arizona takes 20 percent of the tags and makes them a preference utah takes half the tags and makes it a preference all you have to do is look at colorado and what was the first state where everybody started complaining about point creep colorado, <laughs> colorado. yeah so they so. started eliminating you can't apply for somebody else you can't average points you can't you yep. know, do all these things and yeah <clears throat> yeah so here's what it is i uh i've not drawn anything else this year um i i struck out in montana for everything struck out in arizona struck out in utah i'm so <laughs> hey i got a wyoming general out tag i'm i'm pretty happy That's about good. that yeah well, so 
I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Hopefully next week, Colorado comes out and I should, I should draw my elk tag there. That's taken 17 years to build up to draw. So that's why I didn't put in for Nevada, Arizona, just because I wanted to, that's going to be a a quality hunt. I mean, it's not, it's Colorado. So we aren't looking at a 400 inch bull or anything like that, but I wanted to make sure I had time and, and put some, good effort into that hunt yeah well if you lived in bozeman you know you go down to the coffee shop and hunting season half the guys there have just got so close to a 400 inch bull that's so. the first thing i thought of when you said you saw a bull that already had fourth screwing and everything i thought see they're behind every tree over there just yeah another 400 uh, inch bull I, I'm doing something wrong. I, I've never been to a place where I hear so many stories about 400-inch bull elk That's as I do in Bozeman, Montana. But I've never seen one. So I, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I'm not doing the right thing, obviously. Well, well there are guys that have seen 12 or 13 of them just since last August. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no. So anyone who doesn't get the inside humor about I'd say eight or nine years ago, Corey called me and said, are there really that many 400-inch bull elk in Bozeman, Montana, as I hear about? (laughs) And I started laughing because I'm like, man, you must be hanging around the same circles that I am because, yeah, I sure hear a lot of this chatter, but... Yeah. Uh, so but we'll we'll just leave that as a good inside chuckle that maybe now the rest right. of the audience will, I, I think we need a t-shirt bozeman montana home of the 400 inch bull elk that, that never gets shot so i don't know maybe there is one and everybody's there's, seeing there's them. a few there's a few that get shot maybe not right around bozeman i guess but montana montana does a pretty good job of finding big bulls yeah yeah, that's that is true. Um, but did you see the one email we got about the person and said, "Hey, you guys should think about Washington and Northern Idaho. You should be promoting that more." <laughs> uh, I, I didn't read it as that. I mean, there was there was one I saw that that did ask for some advice there. Uh, the other guy that just moved there, I think he said, uh, hasn't heard an elk bugle in a season or two, and was wondering if it's the wolves and how you would hunt those elk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you? Do you have an answer for him? Absolutely. Got it was addressed. It was addressed to you. Oh, it was. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> My answer would be hunt somewhere else. <laughs> I have no interest in hunting elk that won't bugle, uh, and I don't uh-huh. care what it is if they've got trachea rot or (laughs) whatever the reason wolves hunting pressure demographics i it doesn't matter because if they won't talk there's not much you can do to make them talk and i don't have a lot of interest in hunting an elk that won't talk in september yeah well it's kind of like do you want to fish for fish that don't want to bite no come back when they want to bite yeah or go to another lake where they do bite there you go. Uh, yeah. The, the next ridge or the next ridge or the next ridge. So, yep. yeah, I, I read that email. I'm like, is this guy just trying to lead us on a goose chase here? Because I'm sure the <laughs> folks in Washington and northern Idaho are like, oh, let me tell you, this is not easy hunting. So, yep. um, we got another email where a person wants to know where I get my elk information. <laughs> Did you read that one? <laughs> 
are, are they asking for the source of, of where we get our information? Yeah, I was, I didn't want to, I didn't reply to the email. I just thought, well, I'll remind the world that I make most of this up, you know, I say 70, <laughs> 78% of statistics are made up on the spot. So, you know, 78% of the time I probably just pulled it out of thin air. So, uh, no, Google, it, Google is your friend. Uh, if you are like me and you are a member of the wildlife society, which is the society, the professional society of all of the wildlife biologists, you don't need to be a wildlife biologist, but I subscribe to their publications. I'm a member of their organization and the, the journal comes out and it's full of great stuff. It also gives me access to their website where I can go and research all these old articles and all these old you know, journals of, of research and, and projects. Uh, I do a lot of nerding out on grazing studies, BLM studies. If you just type in elk forage, New Mexico, or elk forage, Montana, or elk cattle forage competition, I hope you have about a month of time because <laughs> that's how much stuff is going to pop up for you to read. And so the, I know it's boring reading, you know, it's all these modeling things and they use Latin terms for everything. And uh, I, I, they need a Google translator for that stuff. You should be able to just take these scientific journals and run it through Google and say, okay, here's what a, you know, the average person interprets this. <laughs> Put it in you layman know. terms. There you go. Uh, so I spend a lot of time doing that. I spend a lot of time doing graphs and charts and saying, well, if this was the case in New Mexico, where what happened in Montana? Or if this was the case that, you know, in springtime in New Mexico, where did this transition in summer, in fall, in winter? And that's mostly when I'm focusing on food patterns, which are the the periods of well, i call it early season pre-rut and peak rut you know it's there's the cows are looking for the best food and uh so find the best food find the most cows find the most cows you'll probably find some bulls so yep. I, uh, I didn't know if the guy was asking where, where you got your information because he wanted to skip the middleman and go right to the source or <laughs> if he was if oh. he was questioning the validity of your information or uh, oh, well, what, what was going maybe on? Maybe all there, the above. Maybe yeah. a bit of everything. So I uh I don't know. I I thought it was interesting. Uh you know, I told you I'm doing this, this series uh about uh, kind of the shortcut way to e scout. So I'm doing the first few chapters of here's the shortcut. But if you really want to nerd out, here's some videos and chapters where I'm nerding out. And if nobody watches them, that's fine. It's uh I got to do something to justify all the time I spend reading this stuff. So <laughs> it makes me feel better when I say, oh, yeah, I, I made a video on that, even though nobody watched it. So <laughs> it's there. It's at least documented. Yeah. yeah. The other part of doing this, though, I, here's one of my fears is I, I know I have a tendency to overcomplicate things at times. And I, I, when it comes to elk and elk behaviors, I always got to try to make it less complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I 
that's yeah. my approach. And it, it, when it comes to calling elk anything, it's the more simple it is, the less chance there is that I'm going to mess it up. And so I like to <laughs> keep things simple. So you read some of those emails then where people were asking you some pretty in-depth, detailed questions about this fluctuation and how do you respond when the elk says this and how do I make sure my sound is true and not not fake, blah, blah. <laughs> and uh, you, 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 before we got online when we were talking about those, he said, man, humans have a tendency to overthink things. Absolutely. Would you say that? Is that the case with calling? It, with anything elk hunting. I mean, it's, you just have to, you have to step back and realize these are wild animals. They don't, they don't sit around the dinner table thinking up what they're going to do with the rest of their evening. They don't <laughs> wake up in the morning with a, with a honeydew list and be like, oh, I was planning on going fishing today. I guess I have to do these chores. I'll call my buddy and let him know I'll meet him at the lake this afternoon. I mean, they're, they eat, they sleep, they drink, they stay alive. And every minute of the day is is spent staying alive, not thinking about anything else. And so, you know, I think we just we we tend to bring our own perspective into hunting and overcomplicate it and overthink it. And you know, I did see the one email where the the guy asked, you know, he's, he's from back east. They don't have the big woods, the the timber, and he doesn't have a place to go to see if his bugles sound realistic. So, what should he do? And, you know, I mean, it's, there's a point to it and I understand that, but just, you know, it's, it's overthinking, I think, to a point where just practice, listen to what an elk sounds like on TV, on wherever you want to hear it, and then bugle and try to replicate that sound. And, you know, I I guess I will say, if you want to go out in your garage, garages give a pretty good echo that you can, you can see that from, but I wouldn't worry so much about do I sound realistic uh, in on the East Coast enough to be able to go and call in an elk in, in the elk woods on the West Coast. Just practice, sound your best, and, and go out there. Don't overthink that because what that does is you start questioning your ability, and then that takes away your confidence. When you don't have confidence, you, you're shooting success in the foot before you even get out the door. So don't overthink it. Just yeah. do what you need to do till you till you're confident. Well, I, the flip side of that is there we get some emails where people it's like oh, I'm not going <laughs> to overthink this. I'm just going to go do this. We got one from a guy from Pennsylvania. It is uh, that you know I grew up in PA, have no experience with elk uh, in the part where I live. There are no elk. Uh, I went and signed up for the University of Elk Hunting. Got a bugle and learned how to call from elk 101 and we saw 19 elk and 11 bulls and uh like man this guy needs to be a testimonial for your your (laughs) university course exactly Uh, it it sounds like he didn't didn't overthink it. it he just he he knew what needed to be done he absorbed as much information and knowledge as he could and he went and did it and I think yeah. that there's so many people that just sit on the fence and they're like, I want to go elk hunting, but I want to go elk hunting, but what about this? Just go and experience it. You'll you'll pick up. I mean, learn as much as you can. Don't go out there blind and put yourself in a dangerous situation or in a situation that you're going to fail before you start. But learn as much as you can. Become confident in the things you need to be confident in, and then go and do it. 
And that first experience is going to, you're going to probably get your rear end handed to you, but you're going to learn a ton and you're going to be hungry to, to improve next time. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, we went shed hunting in Nevada last week. I spent eight days in Nevada this year, shed hunting since it opened on May 1st. And I have not found a brown elk antler. I, I got my rear end handed to me. I can I can go just about any direction anywhere and find a brown elk antler. And you think going to Nevada, but you know there's there's a learning curve, and yeah. that that learning curve is not friendly sometimes. But I learned enough in the eight days this year that I'm ready for opening day next year. You can mm-hmm. bet I'm going to make some changes and apply some of the things I learned. Yeah. And you haven't, I, I went through this trend and the reason I brought it up is I can relate to the overcomplicating it. I so overcomplicated elk hunting. Once I started having frustrations and not having success, I'm like, Oh, I just got to think about this more. I, I was doing it the way you were talking about, you know, an elk gets up and says, what am I going to have for breakfast this morning? No, the elk is like, Hey, I can nibble a little bit here. There's some grasses and stuff. And I'm not going to get shot at like Fred got shot at yesterday. That That's what he's having for breakfast. He doesn't want to have a lead bullet for breakfast. So he's just going to stay right there. But I, I, the reason I bring it up is because of how I feel like my first years of frustration, I, I thought I could solve it by buying this gadget or this gizmo and I, you know, roll around in elk urine and sleep in an elk bed. And I, it's like, all that did is cause my wife to get ready to divorce me uh, and I set back my retirement portfolio a lot with all the stupid stuff I bought because I thought, well, I was, I was like every marketer's dream. It's like, Oh, here's one of these dumb suckers. He'll, he'll buy one of these things. Uh, I was overcomplicating it and there, it's not the, there isn't a secret to it or there aren't absolute foundational basics you should understand and stick to, but don't get lost in the weeds until you understand the foundation, the basics, the absolute important things that you really need to know. And maybe that's what experience provides is helped you sort out. What do I need to know on what is just static out here that I can worry about later? So no, and and speaking to that, I'll share a, a funny story example. We we uh, went to uh, Arizona several years ago. A friend of mine had a tag, and I wanted to go down and just experience Arizona bulls during the rut. And he was archery hunting. I said, "Well, I'll come down and do some calling and do some uh, poking around down there." So we went down, and he ended up shooting a really nice bull. And we had a couple days before our plane flew back, and there was a guy camped down the road, and He had stopped by to look at the antlers the one night and said, man, we can't even hear an elk bugle. We can't, we don't even see an elk. And I said, man, we're getting into elk like crazy. I'll I'll go with you. We'll tag along and we'll get at least into some bugling action here. And so we met up with him and we headed up the hill. And the first thing I noticed, he had on, you know, one of those, uh, gosh, I don't even know, like a a Larry D. Jones, you know, the big hat with the big Mm -hmm. brim all the way around it, almost like a sun hat. And dangling yep. off the back of that thing was a cow in heat scent wafer. <laughs> and we're going up the hill with the wind in our favor, and I'm behind the guy. 
and I'm gagging. It's it's <laughs> like nothing I have ever smelled before. <laughs> and you've got to know my buddy who's with me, Burdett. I've I've probably talked about him before, but he's yep. from uh, West Virginia, lives in Tennessee, and he's been coming out. And he's one of the most uh, successful back east elk hunters that I know. Uh, he just gets it done, but. We're going up the hill there, and he's looking at me, rolling his eyes and everything. And so he he, he brings up conversation with the guy and says, "So what's the what's the story with the with the scent wafer?" And the guy says, "Oh, you know, we we've, we've got to smell like a cow in heat, and that'll attract bulls." And he's like, "Oh, okay, okay." And in my mind, I'm thinking, "Listen, if an elk can smell that wafer, it, it's a little two inch in diameter wafer." And then yeah. here we are, 200 pounds or whatever, walking up the hill sweating. There's a lot yeah. more human scent coming off of us than, <laughs> than elk scent off of that wafer. So if an elk's going to smell the, the elk wafer, they're going to smell the human. you know. And, and if we're keeping the wind in our favor, the elk's never going to smell that wafer. And all, all it's doing is making us nauseous behind him. So we get to a point and we sit down and we're eating a, a snack and we're sweating pretty good and we start walking up the hill, and Burdett elbows me in the ribs as we're going up there and winks at me. And I'm like, I have no idea what he's what he's talking about. And we go another 100 yards or so, and the guy that we're hunting with, he stops, and he starts freaking out. And he's reaching back there on his hat, and he's like, I lost my scent wafer. I lost my scent wafer. What are we going to do? Where's it at? And so he runs back down the trail 100 yards, goes back to where we were sitting, looking all around, comes back up there, and... While he's gone, Burdett said he ain't going to find his scent wafer. He's like, I put it underneath a rock. <laughs> he, he had reached over when we sat down and snapped the thread on the scent wafer and hid it underneath the rocks. We didn't have to smell it anymore. But, you know, it, just, it brings up that point that we overthink, you know, scent. And yeah. it's like, gosh, I've got to smell like an elk or I've got to be completely scent free. And the reality is, Elk use their noses to stay alive, and they play the game of the thermals. They move down the hill when the thermals are coming up. They go up the mountain when the thermals are coming down. They bed in an area that they're able to smell anything that's down below them and see or hear anything that's above them. I mean, it's it's all about survival and using their senses. And if we use our senses a little bit, it'll say, hey, if, if they can smell that wafer, they can smell me too. And if they smell a cow in heat, but they also smell a 200-pound guy, guy that's sweating coming up the hill, and they've been hearing gunshots going off, they probably aren't going to come in to check out that cow. They're going to – danger is going to overtake them nine times out of ten and, and keep them out of there. So, Yeah. Well, that's that's a pretty good example there. I'm glad I wasn't the one who had to walk behind the guy and, and sniff all that out. <laughs> I, I still laugh about that over debt cutting that scent wafer off and hiding it well, under a rock. I, I, in about 1995, Corey, I could have been that same guy. And, and I just say that because I, I was into every gadget, every, anything I read in a magazine. It's like, I got to tear this magazine page out and head on down to the sporting goods store and buy these four things. It's like, and none of it helped me kill an elk. Well, I was going to say, it, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. You just have to be able to have a basic understanding enough to know, okay, what's a gimmick and what's a, yeah. what's a resource? Yeah. And, I mean, it's the same with information. It's the same with gadgets. It's, it's 
all you know can be put into that same compartment. And so I think it's it is important to realize, hey, am I being fed too much information here that I don't need? Is that overcomplicating it? And is that going to make it harder for me to gain confidence in what I do know? Or is yeah, that that makes sense. I've been out there once and I saw that happen and what they're explaining makes sense. And, you know, you come to this podcast and you're probably getting filled with uh, a nugget here and there, but there's probably some stuff that you're like, I probably don't need to listen to that one twice. And yeah. And, and a lot of it also gets down to each person's hunting style. Like I I don't know if there's huge variations in hunting style in the archery season that you see, but in the, in rifle hunting, I see such huge variations in how people prefer to hunt and there's not a right and there's not a wrong. And I tell people a lot of whether it's information or gear or whatever is more a function of what's your hunting style and does it work good for the type of hunting you want to do either. Okay. You want, you like to hunt thick timber or, okay, I like to do tracking in the snow or whatever it might be. The way I hunt, which is mostly spot and stock, get up on knobs, glass into sanctuaries, that my gear, my strategies, my tactics might be completely wrong for someone who prefers a different hunting style. So absolutely, that's that's probably the other thing I see is people try to apply tactics to a hunting style or hunting approach that isn't really suited for that tactic. So, but we. We had an email, and I think this guy's going to kill an elk this year. And here's why I think so, because this is a, he is like going down the path in my mind. Uh, and he's from Wyoming. His name is Corey also. Uh, he <laughs> says, I've got five years of serious archery elk hunting under my belt, getting really close, but there's just little bits and pieces I think are needed to close the gap. Uh, I'm getting more adept at finding elk, uh, but given my personality, I want to understand more and more and more about why an elk is in a certain drainage versus others. I know food and water are biggies, but my question gets to forage. Where can I learn more about the most important forage types that elk are looking for throughout the year, aside from bothering the biologist? Uh, So I... uh, I grabbed one of my old charts here where I charted something pretty similar to what he's asking. And uh, the the reason I think he's going to be successful is he's starting to think about it in the right context. Not just what do elk eat as a general idea, but what are they going to be eating on the day that I'm hunting them in a period that is a food-based period, which is an archery period, and which drainage likely has the best forage they prefer well there it's not like there's going to be one meal they're out looking for i mean it's food concepts to me are are somewhat generalist in other words food will grow in certain areas in the on the landscape and it it gives them multiple options where sanctuary i I always say food is more like hunting with a shotgun when you hunt a food pattern and a sanctuary pattern is more like hunting with a rifle they're going to be in very very small precise areas in the sanctuary patterns and more generally broad or dispersed in food patterns but so I, I pulled up a, a Montana study where I broke out four different, I always break it out into four different food types. 
which are agriculture, which is a non-native, usually non-native food types, grasses, forbs, and shrubs. And within each of those, there's all kinds of categories. But the transition of what elk utilize at certain times of the year is really helpful to chart because it illustrates you how much they move from one pattern, one food type to another food type. So just using the, the Bitterroot Valley of Montana, uh, grasses are 38% of their food in spring, 37% in summer. In fall, it drops to 29%. But by winter, it bounces back up to 62%. Well, what replaces the grasses in the fall, which is normally our hunting season? Well, you see a big spike in forbs if there are any available. You see a big spike in shrubs compared to the other periods of the year. So it's like, okay, if I'm hunting the bitterroot in hunting season, yeah, grasses are great. It's still their most preferred food. Their second most preferred food are forbs. Well, what forbs grow in the Bitterroot Valley of Montana? Go do that research. You'll find that out. And then you'll know which drainages, what elevations, what slope aspects, like north-facing slopes, east-facing slopes, what soil types. And that'll lead lead this uh, listener, Corey, to exactly which of those drainages are more likely to have the food that cow elk prefer when he's out there with his bow in his hand. So I think he's going to kill an elk this year. Did, and he said he was from Wyoming? Well, he said he hunts Wyoming. I can't say. Oh, okay. He says huh. he, and I'm not going to, I don't want to rat uh, out what part of Wyoming he said he no, hunts. No, I was just going to say, oh. I, that, I, that may have been me that sent that email. No, it spelled sure a different <laughs> way. Oh, is it? Well. <laughs> Uh, and there were no there there were no typos in it so i know it didn't come from you okay (laughs) i wish i would have sent that email that's uh you know i i was telling my son isaac he listened to our podcast last week uh about uh, you talking about the feed and and all those different Mm -hmm. things and it's like man i just i wanted to sit there and talk about that i I just want to sit there and listen to randy talk for another hour about it because it was so (laughs) enlightening and just it was deep i mean there was some good good information there so i can't wait to see what you've got coming out with the video stuff and i'm uh i'll probably be making charts similar to that because i just i've never (laughs) thought of it at that level it's always the same i mean i walk into an area and it's like the grass is all dead here what are they eating there's no feed you know, I'm always looking at the green grass. And a very, that, that would tell me right away that, okay, they're on some other for, food source here because something has got to be more nutritious than this dead grass. Yeah. Well, and I've never thought of it past that of what is that next food source. And, you know, you talk that grasses drop so much in the fall, it's probably a function of the grass not being available in the fall because it's dry and the grass is dried up and they go seeking something that's that's available yep and then i compare that to new mexico so i pulled up a chart for new mexico which are this area these are mostly non-migratory elk the chart i pulled up from montana is mostly migratory elk so they're making a different evaluation of okay do i want to migrate 25 miles for the good food that's up there high and really put on the food bag make a bunch of fat and then migrate lower for better weather in the winter 
Whereas in New Mexico, these elk are like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm just here on the landscape. I'm going to do whatever. Well, there's a very, very different utilization between agriculture, grasses, forbs, and shrubs in New Mexico during these same periods of spring, summer, fall, and winter than what you see in Montana. So my point of that is it's, it's a little bit precise to each area or each type of elk you're hunting, migratory or non-migratory. So don't think just because you researched a study in the Bitterroot Valley of Montana that that applies to New Mexico. Because comparing these two charts, if you were sitting here looking at my laptop right now, you will see that Forbes have a huge, huge influence. Uh, Forbes are like this biggest spike. They they come and go more, uh, but they come and go at different times in different latitudes and different altitudes. So uh, I didn't pull it up because I really haven't done one for that part of Wyoming. Uh, but that's what I do. And where I got all these are, you know, research studies from universities, research studies from the BLM, the Forest Service, uh, you know, state wildlife agencies. I would say elk are one of the most studied animals out there. The There's a lot of new studies emerging about competition between elk, cattle, and mule deer trying to focus on is is competition for forage what's hurting mule deer populations well in order to do that they got to do some really in-depth precise studies not just this window of time today but they got to do it throughout a whole year and so again as far as his question of where can i get that data that's where you can get that data and pay attention to what's happening in the fall at the time you are hunting you don't really care what they're doing in the spring or what they're doing in the summer or what they're feeding on in the winter. You want to know what they're feeding on the day that you are out there hunting them. So yep. that's, that's great. A long an- that's a long answer to one email. Sorry about that. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a good answer to a lot of emails. Uh, so are you, are you done shad hunting? Is it, is it kind uh, of over? I, I think I am going to go this weekend one last time. I've got a spot that I haven't been able. I went in there one day and it was snowing and there was four inches of snow on the ground and I found two antlers. And mm-hmm. so I've got to go back in there and see what I missed because of the snow. But yeah, I spent uh, four days in Nevada with my daughter, which was, you know, shed hunting was horrible. But uh, the time spent there was was awesome. And then Isaac got home from college uh, last week, and we bombed down there for four more days, just he and I. And again, shed hunting was terrible. And it, uh, but it was uh, a great time. He did. I found a really big shed last year. It was a ten and a half pound antler, which is that uh, a pretty heavy, pretty heavy antler. And I couldn't find the other side. And I spent half a day just gritting back and forth and i actually had kept a track while i was doing that and isaac has access to my my tracks and my waypoints and we went back in there just thinking maybe we'll find something that it gets hit pretty hard and isaac saw that waypoint and he saw my tracks and he started hitting little pockets i hadn't hit and i'll be darned if he didn't turn up the other side to that antler and so Biggest wow. antler he's ever found, and it was a year old, but it was uh, pretty cool to match up a big set like that. Huh. 
Well, now now that you told everybody that Isaac has access to your waypoints and your tracks, (laughs) he's going to get bribed. Hey, Isaac, old buddy, old pal. uh, What what do you say that buy you a new shotgun or a new bow if you kind of give me your dad's information? Uh, I was going to say, being a poor college kid, he would probably sell it out for a a $20 bill. (laughs) <laughs> so we it's turkey season so we've received some emails about people saying you know i really got the hang of this turkey call and i've been a great turkey caller all my life but man i struggle making the same sounds for elk with a diaphragm is there like a <laughs> basics of the difference between turkey calling and elk calling when you got a diaphragm yeah, so you and I both uh, participated in the Mountain Ops Elk Summit or whatever they called it last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was one of the big, there were a lot of people from Midwest and back East there. And some of them, you know, it started off because I gave everybody a diaphragm. We went through, you know, we worked one-on-one with some of them just to make sure everybody could make sounds so that we could get them through the process of learning how to call elk. And several of them said, oh, I'm good. I've called turkeys before. And my comment to every one of them was, forget everything that you learned. Don't don't apply any, because it's completely opposite. When you're turkey calling, it is quick little bursts of air. Your tongue's coming up. I mean, it's just everything just opposite. And if you're a a turkey caller and you put in an elk diaphragm, the first thing you're going to want to do is hit that latex with a big old blast of air to get that high note because that's what you do with the turkey call you know you just that that quick hit high pressure uh, high tongue pressure high air pressure is what's gonna gonna work for a turkey call but when you do that for an elk call you lose your air really quickly you have no control so you really have to forget everything that you know about turkey calling and start over at the basics and you want to just use very light tongue pressure and very light air pressure to make a sound and then as you make that sound you just real slowly flex your tongue up into the latex keeping that pressure increasing with your tongue but keeping your air pressure constant and you've got to really start at that that basic uh, that basic level to learn how to control that diaphragm and learn how to control your air because a turkey call is very short and an elk bugle can be rather drawn out and long. And the the faster that you lose your air and your lung capacity, uh, the faster you lose control. And so it's, it is, I mean, there, there are things that, that you can do, uh, as a turkey caller who's never called elk before, uh, you really do have to start over at the basics and not assume that you know how to use a diaphragm. Really? I would not have known that. I'd have been, yeah, I, I can't, I'm the world's worst turkey hunter. And some would say, no, Newberg, you're even a worse elk hunter. But uh, <laughs> I've only shot two turkeys in my life. And that's a testament to the fact that every population has a couple of really dumb among its species. <laughs> uh, so, I, but we got a couple questions on that, and I just thought, well, maybe we should, should throw that back up there because people were, as you can tell, folks, most people are asking Corey questions and not me. Um, but especially when it comes, I, I don't think I've ever got a question about calling. Uh, oh, I, we, we did get a question though about. Uh, uh, Rocky Mountain hunting calls and, you know, which calls do we prefer? 
uh, I'm like old school because I got this great big wide mouth. So I just tell people go out to their website, see that sizing chart, and pick what works for you. And Corey's probably got a different answer of, well, wait a second. I've spent all these years designing calls. Here's what you should use. But <laughs> I, I almost don't like a- answering these questions because they sound like, you know, you got to have this gadget or this doodad. But really, yeah. having the right size call for my mouth, you know, the shape of my mouth was kind of the the pivot point for me. So that's why this one, I'm I'm willing to answer it or throw it out there for you to answer. <laughs> You're willing to answer it with uh, the the answer of Corey. Give us your yeah. feedback there. Yeah. Throw you under so. the bus, and no, and mm-hmm. you're you're absolutely right. I mean, you've got to find the one that fits your mouth, uh, and it's not just a matter of the you know the width of your palate necessarily, the the gap or the space in between the sides of your your upper teeth. Uh, that's that's where the frame is going to sit, but the tape actually needs to extend to your teeth so it can seal the air. So you can have a really narrow frame in that diaphragm and really wide tape. And it might seal the air, but you're not going to be able to use it because you have a wide palate. Or the flip side, you might have a really wide frame with really narrow tapes. When you hold those two calls next to each other, they're going to look like they're identical from the, mm-hmm. you know, from the perimeter of those calls. Uh, but they're going to act completely different in different people's mouths. And the other thing is when you have a wide frame, you're going to have more latex exposed. So it's going to be a little easier to maybe control that smoothly, but you're going to miss out on some of the lower ends and some of the higher ends. It'll be harder to hit a high note. Uh, whereas if you have a really narrow frame, a very small percentage or a portion of that latex is going to be exposed. That's the part that makes the sound. So it's going to be maybe a little easier to hit that high note with the narrower frame and less latex exposed, but you're going to have a lot more trouble controlling it, and you're not going to be able to hit necessarily the the low note on it. And then you throw in not only the frame size, the tape size, the uh, the amount of latex that's exposed, but now you've got the thickness of the latex and the stretch of the latex, which also contribute to how easy it is to use and how much control you have and what notes you're able to hit. So you go to a, a manufacturer and they've got medium, wide, and narrow frames. They've got you know different cuts of tape that enable that call to be different widths. Then they've got different thicknesses of latex and different stretches of latex. And you throw that matrix together and you understand, well, now I can see why a, a manufacturer might make 20 or 30 different diaphragms. Uh, and, and why is that? And there's definitely going to be ones that are more generic or more uh, easy to use for the for the general population or the majority of the users. But there are going to be some that, you know, some people just absolutely can't make an, a sound with. I had a guy send me some calls that he made uh, personally. He just, you know, he makes them on his own. He's like, hey, I just want to send these and see what you thought of them. And he is an incredible caller. And mm-hmm. he even sent me an audio file of him using the calls. I literally put the first one in and could not make a sound with it. And I've used a lot of diaphragm calls. I couldn't make a sound with it. It was too huh. too wide. The overall call was too wide. The frame was too narrow. The latex was set back too far. I mean, just all these different little things. And it just really, when, when I struggle like that, it, it reminds me 
for someone that's just starting out, a new elk caller or somebody that's never used a diaphragm before, how frustrating it can be to get the wrong diaphragm to begin with. And you just think, I'm not going to get this down. I can't even make a sound with it. And I reached over and grabbed one of my tried and true ones and I put it in and I was like, okay, good. I can still, I can still call. I can still make a sound. It had me worried for a minute there. Uh, so it is important to, to try some different ones, but also to understand what each of those attributes contribute to the, the overall use and sound of that call. So you have an idea at least of, of where to start. But, you know, I always tell people, if you're going to start, start with a medium width frame, medium latex at a medium stretch. And that's at least should put everybody on the board, should be able to make sounds. From there, you should be able to tell, am I blowing too hard? If you are, you're gonna need a thicker latex. Am I putting too much tongue pressure and I'm blowing the, you know, I'm not able to hit a high note because I just, I push it all the way up there and the, the note drops off. Then you might need a latex that's stretched a little more. And so there, there are some things that uh, you can do to find the diaphragm that's right for you. Hmm. So if we hadn't asked that question, a lot of the people who signed up for your university course probably would have been able to look at your video and, and got that. Yeah, no, and I do, I go through how to select the right call for you. And it's not, you know, like you said, I, the one that you use is probably not the same one I use. And I might be able to use the one you use and use it okay, but it's not the one that's best for me. And I think that's what we want people to find is the one that's best for them. Not the best call, not the one that, that gets the most marketing or the most attention, but the one that works for them. And so, yeah, in the, in the University of Elk County, I go through uh, very detailed how to select the call and how to know what style of call is going to be best for you and, and your style of calling before we even get into how to control your, your air pressure, how to control your tongue pressure, how to change octaves, uh, how to add the growl in, when to add the growl in, all the other details that go into actually learning how to call so you can sound like an elk. Well, sounds to me like people, is, is, you never promote this, so I'm the one who's always got to bring it up. But if they want more elk hunting information, just like what you stated there with that little nugget, uh, they should go to elk101.com, sign up, right? Yeah, and they can use the promo code Elk Talk, which we've conveniently uh, added to the podcast. So it makes it easy to remember, and it's going to save them, uh, I think, $20. So that significant that savings. What it is. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Cool. Well, the the other thing that someone has asked us is how do you find transition zones? That's going to be somewhat specific on whether or not you are hunting migratory or non-migratory elk. Migratory elk have a transition zone. In other words, if that zone between the summer range that they're on probably up into late August and the winter range that they get to in December. So all that stuff in between is the transition range. It's not going to be on your go hunt maps and say, oh, here's your transition range. You need to go and find that out through research, talking about all this. A lot of it will be pretty apparent to you uh, just based on, okay, all that stuff up there, that's going to be covered with snow and ice and rock come, you know, whenever, October. And this stuff down here, well, you know, it's uh, 
this is going to be too hot for them in September. So you can do some quick research. And then once you find that, the new tool that we've been talking about with, you know, the Go Hunt maps is that terrain analysis tool. And you can set your elevation bands and just focus on those transition ranges because that's where most of the elk will be during hunting seasons. And in the early parts of the seasons, they're going to be up where the transition range meets the summer range. And in the later part of the seasons, if you're hunting a November season, they're going to be down in the lower part of the transition range where it meets the winter range. So there is no set elevation of, oh, transition ranges are always between 7,000 and 9,000. No, it depends on where you're at. So well, I wish I could say we get those emails sometimes from people that say, what elevation am I most likely going to be able to find elk at? Yeah. And it's literally that generic of a question. And it's like, you know what? I've hunted elk at 60 feet in elevation, literally had elk bugling 60 feet above the ocean. And I know people that have killed elk at over 11,500 feet. And so, I mean, and there are elk found at every single elevation band and topo contour between zero and I don't even know where the top is, but. It's yeah. uh, you're going to find elk where elk are finding what they need, not at a specific elevation. And like you said, those transition ranges in Montana, they're going to be a lot, a lot bigger than other areas. Yeah. You know, the Roosevelt elk doesn't really transition. They don't have a winter range. They don't have a summer range. They have a, they have a little pocket they live in all year round. And yeah. you know, there's there's areas here. And I'm sure Montana's the same, Colorado's the same, where you'll find a bull in the summer at 12,000 feet, 11,000 feet. And I guarantee you they're not going to be there in the winter. And the snow line is going to be at 3,500 or 4,000 feet, so they're going to be a lot closer to that. So, yeah, those bands are very area-specific and terrain-specific, feed-specific, so many, so many variables in there. Yeah. And uh, one of the audience sent us a pretty good question about that, where they said, hey, I hunt elk in the San Juans in southwest Colorado. I've mostly rifle hunted them, and this is where I've found them. Is it logical that they'll be above that in archery season? The answer, I think they knew, is yes. And then the question was, how far up could they be? Well, in early September, on a mild year, they're going to be up pretty darn high so that transition range in the san juans that has some fourteen thousand foot peaks is going to be a much larger area than a mountain range that peaks out at eight thousand feet and so i i think that person is is on to the right idea the way they're looking at it is okay i know where they're at in october when i've hunted them in the rifle season i can almost hunt above that for the archery season and it's it's a good rule of thumb it's not saying that that's the the only place they'll be but yeah and there's you know even more variables to that you look at how hard the spring was and you know where the feed is in the spring right now you know we're talking the end of may uh cows are going to start dropping calves you know any day and their their priorities you mentioned last episode is on feed and it takes a lot more feed to for that cow to sustain and nourish her new calf through those summer months 
Well, this year in Idaho, we still have snow at places where we usually don't have snow right now just because it's been so cool. We've been getting more snow through the winter. So those cows are going to be at a, a lower elevation right now than what they might typically mm-hmm. be because the better food's at a lower elevation right now. But once yep. they establish where they have their calves, they aren't going to roam a whole lot throughout the summer from there. They've got security. They've got feed right there. And it's not like they're going to move up another 2,000 feet in elevation to a to a feed source during the summer. So you've got these cows that are now at a lower elevation than what they would have been last year, and they probably aren't going to move much through the summer. So now the bulls are going to have to come to that lower elevation to find them this fall. So where you got into elk rutting last year, you might be 500 feet in elevation lower on the mountain, or you might be in another drainage that the cows didn't make it up and over into the drainage they normally go into. So spring weather, you know, hard winters, other things also affect that transition range. Yeah. You notice how much time we spend talking about finding elk? <laughs> we don't we don't spend that much time on killing elk. Mostly about finding them. Or at least yeah. that's where that's where my mind always goes, but Oh well, I like you said at the beginning. I if I oversimplify this, I'm going. I'm. I got a bad day. I, I just. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I got to keep it simple. So for me, yeah. I keep it simple by saying, "How can I find them? Once I find them, I can use my lifetime of hunting skills to hopefully figure out a way to get a tag on them." So. Yeah, I've heard you um, say, you know, finding elk is ninety percent of the hunt, or something similar to that. You know that. If, once yeah. you find them, hunting them's pretty easy, and hunting yeah. them's fun. Finding them is fun. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> and it's not that's, easy. Yeah, get to the fun part. Sort out all yeah. the BS that gets you to you found them and you find them consistently. Because then you get to do the fun part, which is the hunting part. So, yeah. I I wasn't going to start this podcast with happy birthday to you. To who you're looking? You're, you're Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. That's their birthday? Yeah, Monday was their birthday. Ooh. 30, 30, 38 years. Wow. Yeah. That, that's a lot. That's... <clears throat> Nonprofit group. You know, they've made a lot of progress from being in a little trailer house rented up in Troy, Montana, where, you know, please send your $10 and just hope that somebody returns <laughs> a, a, an envelope with $10 in it to now be in a group that uh, they've... If you look at kind of their score sheet that they published, if you want to call it a score sheet, and they always say between, you know, RMEF and partners, they're always very proud of working with partners, but uh, they've conserved or enhanced 8.4 million acres of elk habitat, and they've opened or improved access to another 1.4 million acres of public ground for all of us. So that's an awful lot in 38 years. That is. Yeah. So the first thing I thought of was I think we all need to send the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation a a happy birthday card with a a check enclosed with a membership fee. Make sure that we are all supporting uh, not only the, the ongoing efforts, but I mean, like you said, 38 years of these efforts and to still have the energy they have and the passion they have, it's, it seems like it's only grown. And I've been involved with the Elk Foundation since, uh, you know, the late 80s. And yeah. 
that's not I haven't been there the whole time, but within a couple of years, uh, I got got involved and have been a part of it and have seen the progress they've made in so many different aspects, not just in their their overall mission of improving habitat and improving conserving elk, uh, but in everything they do, the effectiveness of what they do, their their outreach and people that they bring into it, like you said, their partnership things that enable the you know 25% of of what we donate to turn into 100% through partnerships that they have with with others so again and I, I say it all the time but if you're an elk hunter and you're not a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation I would strongly encourage you to think about the future of elk hunting and contribute and and be a part of growing that pie so that we have more elk we have more habitat we have more access all things that every one of us want and very few of us would be able to do on our own. So join, yep. join up with us and be part of the solution here. Yeah. 225,000 members, untold number of generous corporate, private individual and other donors and 11,000 volunteers. That's that's what it takes to get all that work done. And I, I use this story. There's a guy named Tim from Colorado. He heard that we were having our Bozeman event in April. And he's like, hey, I volunteer for my local event, but I want to see how you guys are doing it. So he flew up here on his own dime, got his own hotel, and spent two days helping our committee do our fundraiser. And that's just, I, I used him as an example of this how dedicated this core of 11,000 volunteers is. So if anyone's interested in volunteering, uh, go to rmef.org. There's a place where you can sign up to raise your hand and say, hey, let me know how I can help. So it's, uh, we all help in some way, time, talent, or treasure. So, <laughs> Well, Corey, what else like we got? That. That, yeah, I, I again, you know how I got to make it simple. There's three T's, time, talent, and treasure. <laughs> And my wife says, "There's there, no, you forgot the O word. I'm like, the O word? What do you mean? Obey. You know, in the, in the wedding in the wedding vows, she remembered obey. Wow. She always, it's she funny how some of those that. things stick out to other people. Uh, she, it's a joke at our house. She'll, she'll walk around the house like, obey. Okay, and laugh. <laughs> but I, I, I can't remember all my wedding vows, but she reminds me of that part of it. <laughs> love, honor, and obey. Okay, honey, I love you, I honor you, and I am I certainly obey. But don't ask me how the heck we got on that, Corey. See, if you leave, no if, you, if you left this podcast to me, it'd be so far out in the ditch. We'd be somewhere in South America right now. I'd be so far off track. So, uh, you know what we haven't had enough of lately are the randyisms. Randyisms. My crew yeah. says they're putting together a blooper of randyisms. I'm like, ooh, yeah. this could be. That's a not a blooper. That's that's like a wisdom reel. Yeah. Well, last night I reviewed the episode of me going back home to Minnesota and helping my buddies Dick and Wally beaver trap. They got forty three or fifty three beaver in four days and the there's an awful lot of colorful stuff in there and michael <laughs> michael the editor is like how much of this are we using i'm like i don't know <laughs> a lot of randyisms <laughs> in there uh so i don't know maybe we should start a list of randyisms no uh, i think 
one that sticks there. out to me is slicker than a slicker than deer guts on a doorknob. That's grandpa's. Yeah. I, yeah. I, this is the great part of growing up next to some really colorful grandparents, you know, <laughs> uh, his, that was grandpa, Bob, uh, grandma Harriet, who was, uh, his wife. Uh, she would always say, you've mistaken me for somebody who cares. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but she usually added a couple adult words. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, most of my Randyisms come from uh, some completely uninhibited grandparents or aunts and uncles. So, uh, they didn't the cool come thing from is my. You remember them. I hear, I hear cool stuff all the time and I can't remember it, especially in really? the moment when you really need it. I just, yeah. Well, here's the problem with that, though, Corey. It's such an ingrained part of my way of communicating that I say them, and I look around at people who don't know me. They're like, "What did he just say? What?" <laughs> well, you know, I'm up giving a presentation to some, you know, CPA clients, and I use like "dear guts on a doorknob," <laughs> and they look at each other like, "Where the heck did this guy come from?" <laughs> So it, it's got its uh, pluses and minuses. I appreciate any audience that puts up with it and finds humor in it. Uh, it's a testimony to the eight, eight years I spent in fourth grade. But uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the old John Denver song, Toledo, Ohio. I spent a week there one day. So. <laughs> but, <laughs> We better leave. Uh, well, we, we, we better let the audience say, go. So you can so you can go find some antlers. So I can go and hit the refresh button on my computer between now and tomorrow, waiting for Nevada to send me an email that says, "Sorry, Mister Newberg, unsuccessful." unsuccessful. I, ex I expect to be uh, in the top five people that get a text when you are successful there. <laughs> Yeah, you want to know, I just got a text message while we were on the this podcast from a friend from Idaho. I drew Idaho moose. Wow. So you guys must have released your moose, goat, and sheep results while we were on the phone. Here. I didn't apply for moose this year in Idaho. That's the first time in a long time I switched over to deer, elk, and pronghorn. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm going to draw that one. I think the odds are like 0.8% down there in southwest uh, Idaho. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm sure this is my year. And I, well, I've told the crew, if I draw, Corey's going to call for me because it's right in his backyard. Well, I will not be there. Four hours away, maybe. But yeah, So I, this is I my year, Corey. Really well. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to draw. So I, let's just get that blanked out on your calendar right now. I'd hate to see you have some sort of conflict when I call you. And the, you only, the only conflict I might have is all three of my children put in for that same hunt. So if, uh, well, we if could have them a, draw, we could, I was going to say, have, wouldn't that be a camp? <laughs> yeah, that'd be a heck of a camp. So uh, uh, My, kid, my well, kids would love to share a camp with you, especially if there was a, a cooler full of dilly bars. Oh, uh, you know what I found in my freezer when I was digging through the freezer the other day? Three boxes of dilly bars that I didn't know were in there. I'm like, these got buried underneath all this stuff? Holy cow. I was going to bring them here to the office. Otherwise, I'll eat them all. And then I'll look like a great big fat summer wood tick if I eat all those dilly bars. <laughs> Be swelled up. But, all right. Well, you have a good day. Appreciate your time. Likewise, okay. you uh... Take care. Quit snowing.
Yeah, no kidding. No, it looks good. We've got a good good seven day forecast coming up. So all right. I'm yeah, uh, when it. when we regroup, I'm gonna ask you how many antlers you found today. Okay. Well, and I'm you know take, how many uh, I'm gonna go out and take Sam. Sam didn't get to go to Nevada for uh Oh, uh, okay. father son trip so we're gonna he's got to work too on saturday so we only get about six or seven oh, hours but we'll make use man well you know how many i'm gonna get i do so, uh, but i don't know the coordinates of the trees you're gonna hang them in yet so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you want to know a funny story that when i was back beaver trapping drove by my buddy peter rollo's old place where his family grew up and I had to tell the story, you know, about how Peter is the reason why I hang antlers in trees. And uh, the guys with me are like, well, that's stupid. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) But that's what Peter taught me to do. And he he was my buddy. So that's what I do still today. And Peter probably walked around behind you and pulled him out of the trees. Maybe he like, did. I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna teach Newberg to hang them in trees and not have <laughs> put any value on them. Deep inside, he was probably a shed nut, just like the rest of us. And he probably walked around and collected all the antlers you were putting in trees. Maybe he did. I don't know. If so, the joke's on me. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, have fun out there, Corey. Yeah, we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks for being here, folks.